Welcome to the Three Martini Lunch. Grab a stool next to Greg Corumbus of Radio America and Jim Garrity of National Review. Three Martinis coming up. As some of you guessed uh, through social media yesterday, our very special guest today will be New Hampshire Republican Governor Chris Sununu. We'll do a full introduction when he joins us here in studio in just a moment. But uh, Jim, I have to say your naked gun two and a half clue yesterday <laughs> really seemed to be the linchpin to people figuring this out. Yeah, I didn't think I was giving it away. And thankfully, no one said, oh, my God, you guys are going to have O.J. Simpson on the show. Um <laughs> But yes, yeah, so there was a reference to his father, John Sununu, who was then, at that point, the recently departed chief of staff uh, for George H.W. Bush, departed as in dismissed from his job for using the helicopter too much, not for you know being departed from this earth, thankfully. Um, and so he uh, he was in it, and uh, you know obviously Frank Drebin was running around the White House doing making his usual chaos. But that was the reference when I said the surname of our guest had been on there. And oh, by the way, I am a big Governor John Sununu fan, so he can take the helicopter anywhere he wants, as far as I'm concerned. Chris Sununu, uh, as you'll soon find out, is a, uh, is, a, is a fun guy, too, and a lot of energy. A lot of good discussion coming up here on a lot of important topics. Uh, but before we get to the governor, of course, got to do a little business here because you don't have to choose anymore between better hair growth and your health. There's a holistic solution for men that promotes both healthier hair and whole body wellness. So get ahead of that thinning hair with Nutrafol's whole body approach to hair growth. No drugs and no compromises. Nutrafol is the number one dermatologist recommended hair growth supplement clinically shown to improve your hair growth, thickness, and visible scalp coverage. Nutrafol's hair growth nutraceuticals go beyond genetics to multi-target the root causes of thinning hair, including stress, hormones, nutrition, metabolism, aging, and lifestyle through whole body health. Physician formulated using natural medical grade ingredients, Nutrafol's drug-free patented technology provides consistent, reliable results. In a clinical study, men showed progressive improvement in hair growth and thickness after three months and six months. And remember, Nutrafol is trusted and recommended by more than 3,000 top doctors. Very good, Jim. Nutraceuticals. That's that's quite the word. You can grow thicker and healthier hair and support the Three Martini Lunch by going to Nutrafol.com slash men and entering the promo code Martini to save $15 off your first month subscription. This is their best offer anywhere, and it's only available to U.S. customers for a limited time. Plus, you get free shipping on every order. So get $15 off at Nutrafol.com slash men, spelled N-U-T-R-A-F-O-L dot com slash men promo code martini and now we are pleased to welcome to the three martini lunch three-term new hampshire governor chris sununu governor sununu is in his sixth year as governor and running for a fourth two-year term this year governor thanks for coming in studio with us thank you thank you for allowing me to come into a a room in washington dc that's actually quite pleasant (laughs) (laughs) the smiles and laughter and positivity walk outside these walls it's a little different but this is great well it's great to have you in the nation's capital as you know, a lot of Republicans were hoping you'd come to town, just not right now, although they'd be fine with that too, but also next January as the next senator uh, from New Hampshire. You were very high on the candidate recruitment list for the uh, National Republican Senatorial Committee. Ultimately, you decided not to do that. So uh, why'd you decide to uh, try to keep your current job instead of uh, helping the Republicans take back the majority? Yeah, you know, a, a lot went into the thought, obviously. I, I, I firmly believe that we could have won and that that wasn't the issue at all. Um, I think we've done very well for the state of New Hampshire. It's kind of that diamond in the rough, if you will, up, up in the Northeast. Uh, it had to be right for me and my skill set. Uh, I'm a CEO. I'm a manager, first and foremost. And when it comes to 
having the ability to protect my state, design systems, implement new ideas, tackle mental health, tackle the opioid crisis, manage a good financial structure, get a surplus. That's what I do literally every day. Uh, you don't do that in the, in the in Congress and the Senate. You you they're kind of a lot of there's a lot of ideology and they have the luxury of being ideologues, which is okay. Uh, and debating issues back and forth and ultimately getting nothing done was unfortunately sometimes too acceptable. Maybe I was a little harsh in my words last fall. I, I didn't mean to be so overly critical, but I am critical of all of them, not of re- just Republicans, of all of them. I think all 100 senators, I've said it before, fire them all. Um, I, I think that America is looking for accountability and deserves it. Uh, as a governor, I'm held to an accountability standard every single day. It's challenging, but it, it's also incredibly fulfilling. What we went through with COVID, we're still in COVID, by the way. We've managed right through it. We've done a phenomenal job in New Hampshire, but there's no doubt there'll be a winter surge coming and we have to manage that and make sure it's there. All this federal money that's being released. Well, you put the wrong person in office as a governor and the federal money is going to just bloat government. And I'm a small government uh, efficiency guy. And so there's a responsibility of having good management with all the opportunity coming to the state to make sure those dollars are directed exactly where they need to be to lower tax burdens, uh, not just in the long term, but uh, with def- you know deferred maintenance issues and things you'd, you'd ultimately have to borrow or bond on. We're taking care of those issues now. One-time money, one-time spending. So there's just a lot undone that we, I mean, I've, I'm very proud of what I've done for the past five or six years, but given where we are with the economy, inflation, COVID, a few other outlying issues, I, I rebuilt a whole opioid system, for example, that take care of um, uh, issues of fentanyl and drug overdose. And, and I'm very proud. We're the only state in the country where overdose deaths haven't increased two years in a row. Right, overdose deaths across this country are up 60, 70 percent. We're actually down. So this new system has taken some some young roots, which is good. But like anything, if you ignore it, it you don't want it to wither on the vine. You got to give it a little more nurturing. Mental health, all new systems. We got to give it a little more nurturing. So to tell the state, thank you, goodbye, and good luck. I'm off to Washington D.C. It wasn't right for the state. Certainly wasn't right for me, given my I think where my skill set is. I I don't I don't have some of those skills and maybe some of the patience, if you will, of, of legislators. Um, I like working with both sides of the aisle. I have no problem doing that because that's how you got to get stuff done. You get stuff done and then you run on those successes. Uh, kind of a follow up there because you mentioned the patience. I've heard some people, you look back to the 2010 midterms, there are a whole bunch of folks who are right of center who said, you know what, I don't like the direction the country's going in. I've never been in government before, but I'm going to run for office. And people are saying you're getting a different crop of people in this cycle, uh, even though it looks look like it's going to be a good year for Republicans, in part because people look at the Senate and say, well, basically you vote on giant omnibus bills and judicial nominations, that it's not where you're crafting legislation dealing with all kinds of issues. Was that in your thinking, like maybe 10 yes. years ago or 20 years ago, the job might have looked a little different? I think it did look different. Yeah, 10, okay. I think we all know that. It was yeah. very different 10 or 20 years ago. They they got a lot more done. There was more working across the aisle when you have to. And that doesn't mean you give up your conservative principles. I consider myself a very rational conservative. I, I stand by those principles. I'm a fiscal hawk, if you will. I'm very pro-business and, and free market. I, I govern by that live free or die spirit that we have in New Hampshire. It's, it really isn't just four words on, on our license plate, right? It's what really I think has made us very, very successful. Um, down here, it, it's just a little different. You can just get away with fighting along strictly along those party lines. And look, I talk to individuals on both sides of, of the party. Uh, U.S. senators. And and I'd say, well, why aren't you even trying to balance a budget? Like that's a completely, not balancing a budget is a completely foreign concept to me. And I can't think of anything more irresponsible, but they're not even trying. You talked about immigration reform when you had Republicans in the House and the Senate in 17 and 18 and a president, you did nothing. You talked about healthcare reform, you did nothing. You talked about all these things and did nothing. So you didn't meet 
the expectations of our party, of our Republican Party. So I'm dis- I was disappointed in that. And I thought, am I going to be coming down and be, be part of that? It doesn't mean they, they're useless and all of that. People kind of exaggerated a lot of my words. But there's an accountability and a standard that Americans expect. And, and I, I expect it just as a voter. Right? Don't you? I mean, so I, I think we just need to push that envelope a little bit. And I can simply do more. I'm, I'm, I'm six, six. We call it the 603, right? That's our mm-hmm. area code. Uh, I am 603 or, or bust. And, and I'm a zealot for my own state. I really am. Uh, I put New Hampshire first every single time. I love doing that. And I love challenging other states to meet the standards that we're setting. I can do that as a governor as opposed to a, a senator just you know, debating policy. Um, I mean, what does the Senate and Congress do? I mean, let's think about it. They vote up or down on a policy. Mm-hmm. They vote up or down on funding. Mm-hmm. And then they're, they're done, right? I mean, what, what else? Th- then they go on to the next thing or they don't. But they don't design the system. They don't have to implement the dollars. They don't have to bring forth all the other ideas at the local level to make it a reality, to operationalize that at a local level. And governors do that. You know? And so I, I love doing it. It's a challenge, but I love doing it. And, and that's where the fun is. And if I don't love the job... I mean, if someone doesn't love their job, are they really going to give 120% to it, right? I love my job. And I love knowing I give 120%. I think people know. They might disagree with me on issues. That's okay. But people know what I'm given every day because it is fulfilling. Once you've been the executive, being one of 100 is probably a little bit uh, harder too. Yeah. The, how many times do you want the CEO to go to the board? Does the CEO want to become on the board of directors? You know, something like I for, that. I, for one, don't understand why you don't want to spend six years voting on confirmations and omnibus bills. I mean, that I seems guess. really, really exciting. I'll simply say, that was my, my brother was a U.S. Senator yes. and a congressman. Yeah. That was his, and he was, he's wicked, as we say in New Hampshire, he's wicked smart. Right? Yeah. That guy's wicked smart. <laughs> and he was great at it. He really was great at it. And, and he was, you know, super smart and he was very good. And that was really his skill set. And he could, you know, get stuff done in, in a real conservative, kind of that lowercase l libertarian way that a lot of us from new hampshire have um and he, he held the line on a lot of things and that's that was more his skill set but i'm i'm a little more of the ceo type but but plus two democrats you're at 52 they can kill the filibuster so republicans making progress in this year's senate elections is critical think of all the stuff that could have gotten done if they didn't have the split they have right it's now. a gr- it's a great point and and i part of my decision also was by the time november came around when i made my decision last november I firmly, I got to the point where I firmly believe Sununu wasn't the 51st vote. I think we're going to have 53 seats next time. I think Hassan is going to lose even without me running against her. I think we have other candidates in the New Hampshire primary that are undoubtedly going to beat her. We have candidates that got into the race about three months ago, two or three months ago. She's already spent $20 million. They're already beating her in polls come yeah. November, right? That's how built in and, and unpopular she is. And uh, I don't mean that in a personal way, but she just hasn't fulfilled the expectations of the voters in New Hampshire. And I think a lot of folks are going to see a lot of turnover and Republicans are going to win that Senate back, whether Chris Sununu runs or not. Seems like a good transition to the topic of the future of the Republican Party or maybe the state of the Republican Party right now. We're getting into the heat of primary season in the 2022 midterms uh, because arguably the presidential campaigns never really stop anymore. There's no shortage of 2024 speculation. Uh, A couple of weeks ago or maybe months ago at the Brewdiron dinner, you made a very clear statement that former President Trump was bleeping crazy. Uh, It was was a clear joke. And it was was a darn good joke, by the way. It was very funny. How would you assess? the psychological state of the former president. Oh, come on. He's not crazy. Give me (laughs) a break. No, look, the gridiron dinner got a lot of national attention. And again, what people feel, if you don't know the gridiron, the Washington thing, it's it's like a four-hour roast, Mm -hmm. right? And so I went up there. I made jokes about Joe Biden. I had Jen Psaki sitting right next to me. I made fun of her. I made fun of the Democrats. I made fun of myself. I called my father an old bastard. I made fun of the former president. That's what the gridiron is. And so obviously... 
well, the Republican is making, you know, says a joke about everyone is, is a little overly sensitive. Um, look, we have very serious jobs, but let's not take ourselves too seriously. Right. The job is a lot bigger than ourselves. And that's what the gridiron is all about. And there's a lot of media there and it gets all, all this attention. And I guess it, it was just a joke. But yep. look, I'm not anti-Trump, right? I'm not anti-anything, but I am for moving forward, right? And so people say, well, what's going to happen in 24? And, and my message is very clear. And I mean it sincerely. If you're worried about 24, you're, you're going to screw us up. We, if we don't seal the deal in 22, we're not going to have that momentum that we need to get to 24. And, and so our candidates need to win in November and close that deal. And we can't take that for granted, whether it's the Roe v. Wade issue that's coming up or other things that Democrats are going to throw. They're going to be organized and galvanized. I still personally think this inflation and uh, in, in, in the gas uh, price issue is a real kitchen table issue, as it, as it really is. It's hurting a lot of low-income and middle-income families. People are going to get be angry on it, especially with an administration who I think just this week, Joe Biden said, our policies have helped inflation. <laughs> and It's like America just gasped and said, oh my God, you cannot actually believe that, right? So I think those are the kitchen table issues that are going to win it for us in 22, but we got to close that deal first. And then we can figure out who wants to run and what they're running on and what we're about. But when you talk about the state of the Republican Party, I think the media likes to say, is it a, you know, the Trump, 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 right? Because he's the hot button issue. Um, and that's fine. That's a, that's a talking point. He's a former president. And he has to be brought into the conversation. But at the end of the day, 22 is going to be won or lost on the candidates themselves, whether you're running for the uh, House of Representatives, governor, or planning board. I, candidates have to win it uh, by talking to voters and, and convincing them that what they're bringing to the table, not who endorses them and who doesn't. That's what closes the deal in 22. And, and if we have the right candidates, and I think we do, I think we're going to be very successful. I mean, like in some of these primaries, some of these candidates are very explicitly and loudly emphasizing that I am the Trump endorsed candidate, places like Georgia, places like Pennsylvania. Um, is One, is that healthy for the Republican Party? Do you like seeing that or do you not like seeing that? And do you feel like be, you know running around with a Trump label will be good for Republicans, is bad for Republicans? Or do you think it needs to well, be I, less? I like, the way you, you, I like the way you ask that question. Right. Is that healthy for yeah. the Republican? No. Okay. I, I, but, but look, I'm not a big believer in endorsements, right? Okay. I think at the end of the day, like I just said, voters have to look at the, look the candidate in the eye and say, are, are you going to help me and my family and, and you know go forward with a lot of the, the things that, that we want to see? Um, no candidate is perfect. No one agrees with every candidate on a hundred. My wife doesn't agree with me on a hundred percent of things. Trust me, she uh, <laughs> the the closest to us are the ones that challenge us the most. So you're never going to find the perfect candidate, but you have to find people that are real, mm -hmm. right? You have to find people that are grounded in something. And so the media likes to play the the, the are you Trump endorsed or not and all that. But at the end of the day, I, I don't think it's about that, and and I don't think our party ultimately is about that. It's a, it's a nice media talking point or social media shouting or whatever it is. But 80% of the party, I think 80% of America, is kind of in this middle zone, if you will. Not, not centrist by any means. They're strong Democrats, strong Republicans. But both parties have handed their microphones to the extremes, right? We've allowed the extremes to drive our message. I think the Democrats have allowed socialists to do it. I think Republicans have allowed these anti-government crazies to do it. Um, and that, that's good news, right? I, I, the analogy I use is back in the fifth grade, you hear there's going to be a fight three o'clock after school at the, on the playground. Where is everybody at three o'clock? On the playground. They want to watch the fight, right? That's what sells tickets. So social media realized that really quick. And they said, well, we, we're going to emphasize the fight because that's what's going to sell and get people on our streams. And we're going to sell advertising. A little later on, more mainstream media, the CNNs and the Foxes and the MS, MS, M, NBC said, yeah, why are we being real journalists? We're, this fight is what sells. So they got into the game. And unfortunately, from the, an American culture standpoint, that's not where most of us are. 
We just want somebody to bring us leadership and give fairness and opportunity to our family, mm -hmm. right? We're not about the political fight. But unfortunately, that's where those microphones are right now. So I think, I think over time, as we get further away from 2020, as we, from an election standpoint, from a COVID standpoint, I think all this tends to, to peter out a little bit. And candidates in 24 on both the Republican and Democrat side are going to have to stand for who they are and what they're bringing to the table, not just who endorses them and, and, and where that, that is. I think it's a nice talking point now, but I don't think it defines us and I don't think it's where we end up long term. If the Republicans are going to do well in swing states and eventually in 2024, I think the Glenn Youngkin model is what you got to do. You got to make yourself appealing to um, the people who love Donald Trump and you got to make yourself appealing to people besides that because... You have to cobble together 50% uh, plus one at least to do that. So uh, what's the smartest way to do that? For Yunkin, it was decent-based conservative policies and then have a, a really good issue drop in your lap, like with the schools here. How do Republican candidates do that across the board? Yeah, Glenn's, Glenn's terrific, by the way. And I'll say this. I, I, Governor Yunkin, is, he's the real deal. He really is. I'm a big fan of that guy. Um, he gets it in terms of he's not incendiary right? It isn't about playing to the Trump base or anything like that. It's just about being, being saying, look, I'm a rational conservative. Uh, parents matter, right? Those two words, it, it defined what was going on in schools. But remember, it also defined a little bit of that, what I believe, that live for your die spirit. What it was really saying is you matter. You are an individual. You're an individual business. You're an individual person. We, what you're an individual caring about your kid or your, your parents who can't get veterans better, whatever. You're an individual. And as a government, we're going to treat you as an individual, not from a big party platform. And that's what ultimately resonated with folks. Even folks that didn't have kids in school said, well, when he says parents matter, he means that we all matter, right? Not government systems matter. And the Democrats obviously, you know, had a terrible candidate and, and you know, uh, put all their money in, in, in the other direction. But Glenn, Glenn's a great governor in, in the real deal. And I think most, I, I can tell you, most Republican governors, um, that's the way we govern, right? The individual has to come first. Be, why? Again, it goes back to that word of accountability. I have to go visit a school and talk to teachers and kids and parents every day or visit uh, a nursing home and talk about residents, whether they're getting the care they need or visit a hospital or visit uh, a recovery for, a center for, for opioid abuse and talk to those people as individuals and listen. Well, the system was worked here and here, but it didn't work there, there, and there. And I say, okay, there's the barriers. And that's, that, that's Glenn's approach. And that's what Republicans are really about. We're not about Trump, not Trump, or whatever, you know, or, or you know, this issue or that issue. Our issue, local government, minimal government control, minimal, minimal government infringement. Whether we like what you're, if you can oppose me on a philosophy, you know, your business can oppose me, you can be oppose me, but I'm not going to use government to penalize you for that, right? That's big government republicanism. That is not what we are about at all. That's kind of playing into the fight, if you will, as opposed to being hopeful and optimistic, trying to encourage other candidates to get on board. I was out in California talking to a, 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 the state Republican meeting, and I was talking to them all about how to inspire the next generation of, can, of Republican candidates to, to, to rise up, what issues are important to them. Environmental issues are important to the next generation of Republicans. There's no doubt about that. All the polling shows that. Um, and so it doesn't mean we have to be climate change alarmists, right? It just means you have to understand and bring a rational approach to you know, transition out of fossil fuels over time so we're not rocking you know, the energy markets and, and things like that, you know, understanding that there's a, a place for new renewable energy. Maybe Arizona's pretty good for solar. New Hampshire, you know, maybe we're, we're covered in snow six months. So let's have a smarter approach. Offshore wind, that's good for New Hampshire, but maybe not necessarily the best for other parts of the country. So, you know, inspiring uh, people on their issues to hopefully know that they can step up and not be part of just a political fight. It's not, 
I, I don't live in that political fight. People think we do, but I, I don't. I see very positive all day. I don't watch cable TV. I really don't. I mean, I do a lot of social media posts, all positive. I don't engage in the comments and all that kind of nonsense because I think there's a responsibility in leadership to be hopeful and optimistic because I need my, my B team and my C team coming after me, right? We need to build the bench. And that's a responsibility of leadership is inspiring that bench to step up. A lot more conversation to come with uh, Governor Sununu in just a moment. But first, I got to tell you about the fantastic new deal from Omaha Steaks. Spring is here, so let Omaha Steaks make it real easy to stock up on all your grilling favorites. I love their products, the filet mignons especially, but the burgers are phenomenal too. They've got fantastic hot dogs, chicken, so much, and it's all great, especially off the grill. So visit omahasteaks.com and enter Martini into the search bar and order that spring grill pack today. You'll save over 50%, plus you'll get four free Omaha Steak burgers and four chicken breasts also free with your order. This package has it all from the butcher cut filet mignons to the delicious caramel apple tartlets, and you can substitute different items so your package has exactly what you want. Omaha Steaks delivers perfection in every single bite, every single time, and if they don't, although they will, uh, you can get 100% of your money back or a replacement box. Visit omahasteaks.com. Type the keyword martini in the search bar and order today. One more time, visit omahasteaks.com, use the keyword martini, and order the spring grill pack today. Don't forget, you'll get four Omaha Steak burgers and four chicken breasts for free. That's omahasteaks.com, keyword martini. Governor, let's move on to uh, the midterms. It's supposed to be a, a good year uh, for Republicans. Uh, we'll leave it to Republicans to blow uh, it if we're not if we're not disciplined, it, it, right? We you said be it before smart. we could. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, so you, you know, but uh, I don't know whether you feel more comfortable with Bill Clinton feeling your pain or Joe Biden tasting your frustration, which he <laughs> said a, about uh, inflation <laughs> yesterday. A lot of issues. Um, obviously, inflation is a big one. Uh, general competence. I think ever since Afghanistan, that's been a big issue. Um, crime uh, is certainly one in some parts of the country. Opioids, like you talked about, is a big one in New Hampshire and a lot of parts of the country that the media simply won't give a lot of oxygen to, even though record number of overdose deaths uh, last year. Uh, the border, you're a border state, uh, different border than the one that gets most of the attention. Uh, what are the issues that matter most in your state this year? And, and which ones do you think will matter the most uh, across the country? It's inflation, right? I mean, you know, the reality is we just saw a report about 30 minutes come out that inflation is, again, higher than anticipated. Uh, April was 8.3%. Uh, that was more aggressive than the market was hoping for. Um, that's a reality. And so uh, this soft landing, this we're, we're going to cut, we all want a soft landing on, on the recession, but there's probably some form of recession coming. Um, we remember this Biden administration has authorized all this money to be spent this uh, infrastructure money, not a penny has been spent yet. Not a penny has been spent. It's all been authorized, but there's no dollars actually out the door. Wait till that starts happening. And then we're going to have an issues with steel, with oil even further, because you, you need oil to make asphalt, right? Mm -hmm. With raw materials, cement and concrete. The cost of cement has gone up three or four times. You know, I watch this stuff every day because as a small state, we're always trying to pull together our buying power so that we can compete with the big guys, so to say. So by watching what's happening in these kind of commodity material markets, uh, so not just supply chain issues, but that's, that one is, is obvious as well. Um, we're still going to feel these inflationary pressures, especially around uh, gas and diesel for a long time. Truckers, just getting the product from Bentonville, Arkansas, right, at Walmart to your Walmart, let's say in New Hampshire, whatever it might be. I mean, that costs that trucker another 1500 bucks uh, just in, in the, the price increase that happened last week. Right, two weeks ago, now two weeks later, he's spending fifteen hundred more just to transport that product. 
I mean, that's going to bring supply chain to a halt. And the Biden administration's unwillingness to, to, to own any of this, and if anything, his statement yesterday that, you know, my policies have improved the inflation. I was, I was baffled by it. So this is a real issue. Inflation is the worst tax on the poor you could possibly uh, give in the middle class. And they're feeling it and they're frustrated. And if you think they're frustrated today, wait till, wait till November. Um, so I, I think that's a real issue. That's why Republicans are going to win because we are, we talk about being fiscally conservative as a party. But are we? I'm very proud to be a very strong fiscal conservative. I'm, I was ranked the most fiscally con, uh, responsible governor in the country. Thank you for patting me on the back. <laughs> Let me just pat my, my arms, are, my, my, my hands are two inches longer now for patting myself on the back all the time. But, but really, I take that very responsibly, right? We need to see that out of Washington. We need to see that out of Washington. I want to see a balance, but well, governor, it's just not that simple. You know, you, uh, I, I get it's not simple. It's hard in New Hampshire too, but we do it every other year. We balance that budget. We manage our debt. We make sure that other people's money, which I have been charged with the responsibility of managing, that is the utmost responsibility I carry. I take that from the private sector. I was an engineer for a long time, and then I ran a, I ran a ski resort. And I had to make sure that our team got paid every week in managing cash flow and payroll. And I had shareholders that had invested with me and they believed in me. And I used to go to try to go to sleep with ulcers and, and headaches because the managing other people's money is a monstrous responsibility. And I carry that with me as governor. I wish Washington would do that. $30 trillion is a real number. It's not some fantasy land thing. It is a real number. We owe that money back. And so we have to have some long-term strategy, short-term as well, but at least a long-term game plan to say, you're, you've, in, you've invested in us, you believed in us, you voted for us, and one of the foremost responsibilities of managing your money, we're just going to keep ignoring it. Social Security, like that thing is going to go bankrupt. Medicare, it's going to go bankrupt unless we put in real reforms. Republicans have the responsibility of not just managing short-term inflation, which we can do with good management, uh, but we do have the responsibility of managing the long-term economic stability of this country. I'm not seeing it right now. I think a lot of folks aren't. So I just want to say, don't take that for granted. Demand that accountability out of the Republicans that you elect in November. Best case scenario for Republicans. They have a, they have a great year in the House, great year in, in the Senate. Uh, obviously, you're probably a little more focused on gubernatorial races and, and things like that at the RGA. But like, you know, ideally, what would Republicans be doing starting in January 2023, particularly to address the problems of inflation? Uh, on a national level? Yeah. Um, uh, so that's a great question. I mean, you can... If you're just going to pass bills that, he, that the president is going to veto, you're not going to get anywhere. We need to start doing what we do the worst, messaging, messaging the right way, public pressure to change some of these policies that have gone into place to drive where we need to go. It doesn't mean all fossil fuels all the time necessarily, but it means you need to have a transitional plan. The realities of COVID are there. You need to control how the dollars are spent. Um, you need to make sure that it's being managed at the right level. We can't go back necessarily and just put, you know, get rid of all the, the extra money that Washington has spent, but you need to be smart going forward. And let me tell you, if you balanced a budget, I'm not, it's going to hurt. It's going to be a little bit painful. But the markets would also respond and say, okay, there's a long-term strategy here for America. We're not going to put ourselves on the brink. If we always plan to balance our budget, well, we just need to stay a little bit ahead of GDP that's just not going to happen. You're going to have ebbs and flows there. And ultimately, it weakens ourselves on a national scale. So I think having the right messaging and a right long-term strategy and tackling these big issues that some of them, some of folks in Washington, some Republicans in Washington, frankly, are just too afraid to tackle, but they don't understand that by tackling them, they'll be thanked because America isn't dumb. Our voters aren't dumb. They get it. They get absolutely what's happening and they're scared about what's happening. 
on a national level. They've lost a lot of faith, right? Look at all those polls. Do you have the direction of the country, faith in Congress? Those are always like sub-30 in approval numbers. So people know what's going on. They're not being duped. But as Republicans, if we live to the expectations and the responsibility that we claim to uh, in the campaigns, I think we'll be, quote unquote, rewarded by that. And I think America would be a lot better off. Let's talk about a couple of specific issues. I know Jim's got at least one that he wants to bring to your attention as well. Uh, We talked about it a couple of times in passing now, and that's education. What parents saw uh, as a result of the pandemic and what their kids were seeing, uh, the curriculum fights, not only here in Virginia, uh, but beyond, uh, this has become a front and center issue. And for the first time in my conscious memory, it's an issue where the Republicans actually seem to be in a position to to benefit uh, from the issue. I know you graduated high school from Thomas Jefferson Science and Tech and then went to MIT. So I'm sorry you didn't have better educational opportunities uh, in life. But um, you've been working on this issue. School choice, I think, is a rock solid winner for Republicans. And every time it's emphasized, it goes well. Uh, What you've done not only uh, focuses on school choice, but you have uh, moved in the direction of vouchers as well. So explain what you think is, I don't know if there's a universal approach to this state by state, but but what wins and what mm. resonates with parents and what gets results? So let's talk about how to win the issue. 40 years, uh, New Hampshire's been talking about some form of school choice. We got it done. And we got it done in the right way. We didn't, for a long time, we tried to go for all or nothing, right? As opposed to, you know, complete voucher system, complete school. And that would never pass for, for a variety of different reasons. So we took more of a stepwise approach. We said, okay, we're going to make sure that all the state dollars that go into a, a child's education, and it's about a third, maybe 40% of the money uh, comes from the state. Uh, if you are at 300% of the federal poverty level or below, right, so the, for the middle and lower income students, you can take the state money and do whatever you want with it. And my strategy there was very simple. I knew it was going to be successful. I knew we were going to open up doors of opportunity for families that had never even been offered that kind of opportunity. And we thought a few hundred people would take advantage. I think like 1,500, something like that, have taken advantage of the program and within the first year. We're not even a year into it. Um, so it's going like wildfire, which is great. And then they go out and say, well, we need to do more of this, right? And let them spread the message, neighbor to neighbor, school to school. It's not shutting down schools. It's not taking any money out of public education. Not, none of those myths that the Democrats throw at you are true. So sometimes by taking a stepwise approach, you get the first win and it builds on itself. And then, by the way... It isn't just a bunch of politicians saying, trust us, it will work. It's inner city families and lower income families saying, this is an amazing program. And holy, I never thought my kids would get this kind of opportunity for homeschooling or a private school or parochial school, whatever it is, right? So because that's up to you. My job as governor is not to solve your problems. It's not. My job is to create doors of opportunity as many doors of opportunity as possible. And then you do you. You decide what door you or your business want to walk through, whether you're a hardcore liberal or a hardcore conservative. I don't care about your politics. I just want to set up those doors of opportunity. And I guarantee you, when we do that as Republicans, we become smaller government. We become much more efficient. We empower the individuals and everything rises from that, right? It's, it's really a rising tide. So the foundation of school choice opens up so many doors. That's why Glenn won. You know, it wasn't just on a school choice issue. It was more on the parents matter issue. But what we're doing in New Hampshire has just been phenomenal. And, and again, we'll let that kind of mature for a year or two. And then maybe we'll take another step. We'll look at the data. Maybe it worked here. Maybe we had good, good opportunity in rural areas. Maybe we didn't. Maybe we had good opportunities in the inner cities. Maybe we didn't. So we can address those barriers to make it better. You don't just, oh, we got it done. Rest on the laurels. Walk away, right? You want to challenge yourself to make it better. Just because a, a family has $5,000 or $6,000 in their pocket to use any way they want, do they have enough opportunities in their region to do that? Maybe they do, maybe they don't. We can explore, you know, keep exploring that, you know, seeing where the demand curve is on it.
But you got to constantly look at the data and challenge yourself to keep tweaking the system and making it better. Makes everybody better. Makes yeah. everybody better. Sure. Right, sure. Probably the the uh, less pleasant section of the interview here, Governor. Uh, the Alito draft got leaked and you pretty quickly put out a statement saying, quote, as a pro-choice governor, I am committed to upholding Roe v. Wade, which is why I'm proud of the bipartisan bill headed to my desk this year that expands access. So long that I am governor, these healthcare services for women will remain safe and legal. People like me ground our teeth when that when upon reading that. Uh, but you've also got a lot of grief from pro-choice Democrats who argue that the uh, legislation you signed that went into effect January 1st this year uh, deemed post-24-week abortions illegal except in cases of a medical emergency. As a governor, you don't have perfect control over what the law is. You can only sign or veto legislation that's sent to you. But if, you, if the legislature said, Governor, we're going to let you have whatever you want on this issue, what should your state's abortion laws be? Well, look, I'm the first governor in 40 years to sign a, an abortion ban. Right. Govern, Republican governors before me never signed that. I'm the only, I've done more on the pro-life issue than, than if, you, if you will, than anyone. And I believe, as most Americans do, that there should be a ban on abortions in months seven, eight, and nine. And we got that done. And that was a 40-year challenge. And we actually did it. Um, again, most ultimately, when, whether, regardless of where the, uh, the judgment comes out out of Roe v. Wade, states are going to have to you know, make their decisions. Some states will do go for complete bans, and they'll we'll see what the political ramifications of that are. Most states will be exactly where New Hampshire is, as as we are now, with some something in the middle. Is it 15 weeks or 24 weeks or 20? You know, whatever it is, viability. You know, everyone can def- define it a different way. So ultimately, this is going to play out, kind of being New Hampshire being right where we are now. We're in line with 44 other states. We'll probably remain in line with 44 other states, and that's for me. That's the right place to be. You know, we have some options for, for individuals early on in, in that process, but a full ban on it, I, I just think my sense is very few states are actually going to ultimately go that way. In light of your beliefs being not easily putting into a, you know, one label of pro-choice, one label of pro-life, it's pretty clear in, in you know, you're, you're heavily favored for re-election, but Democrats are going to attack you as a, you know, pro as being anti-abortion. Democrats will say I'm, I'm too pro-life, yeah. uh, you know, extreme folks on the extreme will say I'm too pro-choice. Um, we're, this is New Hampshire. We're an in-the-middle state on this issue. We're, um, I don't mean to say I'm in the middle, but I believe in a, a, a reasonable ban to be put in place. We did that, but that's where we are. Um, have you gotten any pushback from fellow Republicans over the statement you put out? Yeah, a little bit. Yeah. But look, I, again, um, I don't really look at the polls on the issue. You know, I, I, this is where I am on the issue. I think the, the ban that came into place last year, it had all these kind of really, really aggressive provisions that were completely un- unreasonable. No other state had them. So that's why, you know, I worked hard to kind of pull back on that because it didn't make logical sense to have that kind of stuff in there. A, a ban on the late-term abortions, as most states have, is exactly where we need to be. You're going to have pro-life, pro-life. I think to your definition of pro-life and pro-choice, we'll see wh- wh- where those definitions go, right? Because is, is it an all or nothing game now? Is it as black and white as it has always been deemed to be? I don't think so. In fact, I, I know it's not going to be because, um, you know, that backstop of Roe v. Wade may not be there in the future. And states will just have to decide, is it six weeks, 12 weeks, 24 weeks, whatever it is. Um, so most states are going to allow, even Republican states, red states are going to, my sense is going to allow some form of choice in there. All right. As we uh, get ready to wrap this up here, Governor, uh, Jim and I have uh, a, a running frustration with the lovely state of Iowa. 
not only because they always get to go first in the uh, presidential caucuses. They don't go first. They don't go first. They're the first in the nation caucus. You're the first in the nation primary. A caucus? Yeah. Can you tell me what a caucus is, by the way? It's a totally convoluted process. Apparently apparently neither can Iowans tell you what a caucus is. It it, it doesn't involve counting votes, apparently. That's that's called batting practice. Okay, the game hasn't really started yet until New Hampshire comes into play. We're the first inning. So nonetheless, over the last couple of weeks, we've been talking about the fact that the DNC is thinking about moving on from Iowa as the starting point. And Jim and I were generally favorable uh, on that because if you're going to go first or go at all, you should probably at least be able to determine who won, uh, which the Democrats have not been able to do for the past two cycles. Republicans couldn't find a winner in 2012. And so um, so we're okay with that. We do like the idea of smaller states going first. So candidates have the opportunity for retail politics and build their name if they're not well bankrolled in the beginning. The question is whether the same states should always get to go first or whether the smaller states ought to rotate. So. As the questions over Iowa come up, the questions I'm sure will come up over New Hampshire. So why should New Hampshire keep that spot cycle after cycle? Yeah, we don't we we don't deserve the first in the nation primary because it's a tradition. We deserve it because we've earned it over everybody else. We have the highest voter turnout. We have the highest poll numbers in terms of integrity of our elections. We have the ability to really force the retail politics. And we have a history where it doesn't matter, to your point, it doesn't matter how much money you have. It doesn't matter about your name ID. You got to earn it person to person, individual to individual, which is what the Republican Party is really all about. Um, So it's not about a tradition at all. I mean, if someone can match our numbers in terms of, you know, that voter turnout integrity election and and the ability to to get your name out there in a way that you just can't do in in really any other state. I would challenge you to find any other state that gets the the results and the data that we have. And we take that very seriously. Governor, with all due respect, isn't some of that high turnout because New Hampshire goes second? And that if, say, Virginia or or any other state was going, you know, was going that early in the primary, by the time it gets to us, usually it's down to two or three candidates. Whereas in New Hampshire, it's, you know, it's five, six, seven, eight candidates. No, because we have high voter turnout, not just in the first in the nation primary. We have very high voter turnout in our in our normal primaries in September, in our general election. We, we always have some of the highest voter turnout and voter engagement because, and the reason is this, we are such a locally controlled state, right? So many, so much of what happens in terms of politics happens with the planning boards and the school boards and the, and the, the, the town councils and the city councils and everyone's involved in that in a 400-member legislature that's effectively a volunteer legislature. I mean, if you're not running for office in New Hampshire, you're probably related or, or your next door neighbor is, right? We're very engaged in our process, unlike anywhere else. So we have these fundamentals that are built into New Hampshire that you're never going to find in another state that allow and really force a retail politics that, that you don't find. Look, people come up to New Hampshire and their minds are, for, you know, in that, those final weeks of the first the nation primary, their minds, are, they can't believe what's happening. And it really is like our fifth professional sport. People, you know, candidates going corner to corner, you know, bookstore to bookstore, not doing anything they can just to shake a hand. Um, we don't give a lot of money in New Hampshire. It's really hard to raise money in New Hampshire because we would never pay to have a presidential candidate come and sit in our living room. They have to earn the right to come sit in our living room with my friends. There's a running joke, but it's very serious. Gee, uh, you going to vote for for Joe Biden this year? How do I know? I've only met him twice, right? That, but that's the way. That's the mentality up there. You know, I got to meet you a couple times. I got to look you in the eye, Republican and Democrat, and earn it. And you just you're ne- you're never going to get that in in Virginia. You're just you're just not. It's going to be about big money and all that kind of stuff and big advertising and and frankly anything. If you, whatever you do with the first in the nation primary, it's obviously got to stay in New Hampshire. But God, keep it away from Washington, Mike. That's the worst thing you could possibly do. <laughs> so when there were 15, 16 Republicans running in 2016 and a couple dozen Democrats, 
in reality, are these guys like 50 yards apart as yes. they're campaigning? Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. No, no joke. Yeah, no. Chris Christie is doing a town hall and he was doing a town hall in Chester. I think it was in Chester. And then walking up about a 200 yards away over by the town cannons and the crossroads. Um, was it was Scott? I think it might have been Walker was walking or something like that was walking up. I, I forget who it was, but man, it was it was it was great. And he's shaking hands and Chris, he's doing his thing. And then the Democrats will come in. It's it's just it's a free for all. And again, it's not about personal attacks. It's not about big money. There's a little advertising, of course. Um, usually the candidates that try to spend the strongest dollar, uh, we smell right through that, right? That it's like, oh, don't don't do that. Don't we, we see it coming. You know, the candidate that is, you know, uh, earliest at Dunkin' Donuts. Yeah, we'll notice. We'll notice you there with, as opposed to the Starbucks guys. No offense to Starbucks out there, but you know, we, we, we like our down home uh, local stuff and, uh, and, and we do, do, do take notice. Not that you have to just agree with everything we're about, but you got to be real. If you ain't real, we're going to smell it a mile away. So you are in Washington uh, today, or I imagine, you know, into the nation's capital. You mentioned speaking to the California. It's lovely. It's so, it's just lovely here. <laughs> I, I mean that with all sincerity. I'm a politician. I would never lie. It's, it's a pleasant, it's <laughs> relatively pleasant today. Um, you see, obviously you're running for election. Clearly you said you're not interested in being a senator, but there's are other executive jobs in our government. Uh, and so the question is, look, obviously you're, you're not interested in running anytime soon, but do you ever look at the, you know, the resolute desk in the Oval Office and say, hmm, that's got like a nice place to work? I don't, I don't look at, no, I, I not, no, I look, I'm, I'm definitely focused on 22. A, a lot of people are talking. There's no doubt. I mean, that that's just the, the way it is. Um, I'm not really focused on that. I'll maybe we'll, Get, get there after 22. We'll see what happens and where things are. And again, if my skill set fits, and I think it does. Look, I'll say this, whoever becomes the next president, I'm a firm believer it needs to be a governor. I, and I'm not just saying that because I'm a governor. You need executive decision-making buck stops here type experience as opposed to this legislative gray area in, in ideology. You need to have a, someone who understands accountability, hopefully someone who's had a job in the private sector and, and struggled and, and understand what, what people go through on the paycheck side. Governors, at least Republican governors, they all have that. They all have great, great experience there. And I think almost all of them would make you know, phenomenal presidents. And I, I believe that sincerely. So hopefully a couple governors will get up and they'll run and you know, we'll see where all that goes. But um, yeah, folks have asked me, but you know, nothing I'm thinking about right now. Well, every two years is the governor's race in New Hampshire. Every two yeah. years. Look, I'm getting, I'm going for my fourth term. I'm the <laughs> only fourth. I'll be the, me and Phil Scott in Vermont will be the only four term governors. But, and no governor's gone beyond that because it's, it's really hard getting elected. Personally, it's a struggle. It doesn't matter how popular you are. Going through four campaigns in, in effectively seven years, it, that, that, it wears on you. It wears on the family. It wears on the, you know, the public toll and all that. But we are in a, in a pretty tough time right now. And I'm, I still can give, as long as I can keep giving 120%, I'm, I'm going to do it. Um, and that's, that's where, where, where my focus is. And you know, we'll, we'll see what happens. Well, Governor, we thank you very much for your time today. Thank you for uh, your obvious endorsement of the Three Martini Lunch podcast by appearing with uh, us. Other today. than the fact that I'm, I'm waiting for the martini. I, I don't, uh, uh, three cups of water, but I, I, it, it'll, it'll do. It'll yeah. do. You're, you're learning water. in person the secret of you know, Three I, Martini I run, uh, New Hampshire runs all their liquor stores on the highway, right? So technically, I'm the CEO of one of the largest uh, liquor store retail systems in the country. I will send you a few martinis down here, because you, uh, just in case, uh, just so you have some on, on, on hand for your next guest. Hey, free stuff will always work with us. So thank you. Thank you. Uh, Governor Chris Sununu on the Three Martini Lunch. Thank you, guys. So, Jim, we covered a lot of ground there. Uh, we uh, went everywhere we wanted to go, and he took us some places we weren't even expecting to go. Uh, so I, I, I got to say, I thought he was pretty open. We didn't agree on everything. But uh, in the end, I, I thought we got a lot out of him. I, I was going to say, I think he had, uh, at minimum, well-defended 
if not terrific answers on almost every question. And what he said about keeping New Hampshire as the first primary in the nation, I think that'll be a very popular answer in New Hampshire and <laughs> not so popular in about 49 other states. Uh, but no, like, you know, obviously this guy, this is a prepared, it's easy to see why he's, you know, uh, in his third term and looking good for his fourth, um, probably the kind of Republican leadership you'd like to see in a lot of places in this country. And uh, I, you know, interesting on that last qu answer question, you know, he obviously, look, I think there's an old saying of every senator looks in the mirror and sees a, a president looking back. I don't think governors are that different. And, you know, when you're in Washington meeting with, you know, as you mentioned, going to the State Department later today, uh, speaking to state parties across the country, that's planting the seeds for something down the road, I strongly suspect, or at least keeping your options open for something down the road. Yeah, we don't know everything that's on the schedule, but... Uh... You know, and usually small state governors might have a disadvantage. New Hampshire, given its uh, position. <laughs> he, he'd be in a pretty good spot for that primary. Yeah. You know, you know. Yeah. The number of candidates coming. It's like the time Tom Harkin ran for president in Iowa. Nobody else went. And all the retailers are like, hey, come on, man. What are you doing? Yeah. By the way, New Hampshire folks might not like that. that. That's actually one of the great ironies is that all of a sudden you become, well, he's going to win that state. So nobody cares. And that's, you know, <laughs> could really hurt the New Hampshire economy. You don't know, run for don't run for president. That's the. <laughs> Now, the last New England governor uh, that was uh, prominent was uh, Howard Dean uh, running for governor. <laughs> I think Chris Sununu would be a significant improvement. Calmer, later, you know, less yelly. Yeah. The most disturbing thing, I think, of our interaction with uh, Governor Sununu today was actually <laughs> as he left the studio, he, what did he call himself? A Tom Brady aficionado? Or what did he say? Yes, he was saying he, was, he tries to follow the, the Tom Brady TB12 health. And he said he was talking about running this morning and how, you know, you when you're running for re-election, you're doing a lot of events, you're going from place to place and stuff. Uh, and listeners, I was very laid back. You should know. I did not <laughs> lunge at him. I did not uh, I did not have any traumatic flashbacks or anything. I did not try to Mo Lewis him or anything like that. <laughs> uh, no, he's a, you know, uh, uh, you know, and obviously the interesting thing is I said, oh, you so that means, means you must root for Tampa Bay. And he said, yes. So, you know, I'm just going to get him in trouble with Patriots fans, but uh, Patriots fans, you deserve that betrayal. And uh, actually, I actually, you know, strongly suspect enormous number of the New England Patriot fans, you know, the, New England, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers became their second favorite team almost overnight a couple of years ago. Bucks are probably his NFC team at this point. I would imagine he's still got a little bit of, a little bit of Patriots gear. But uh, yeah, uh, by the way, Mo Lewis is how he got Tom Brady. Yes. <laughs> so we don't want but Mo Lewis should have done that to Tom Brady. And then whoever's third in the list would have been the, the next superstar you know, of, the, of the generation. Oh, man. So great. Uh, like we've always said uh, over the past several months, when, uh, when a really good uh, opportunity uh, presents itself to have a guest here on the Three Martini Lunch, we're going to take it. And we think that was a a good thing to do today. And if it happens again, we'll, we'll do it again. Uh, but the usual fare remains the usual fare. Indeed. And just for all the PR flax who keep pitching, well, now that you have guests on your podcast, look, don't call us. We'll call you. <laughs> That's exactly right. We're very select. Very select. All right. Jim Garrity, National Review. I'm Greg Corumbus of Radio America. Thanks for being with us today. Do subscribe to the podcast if you don't already. Tell your friends about us as well. Uh, thank you so much for your five-star ratings and your kind reviews. Please keep those coming. Also, uh, remember, you can get us on your home devices. All you have to say is play Three Martini Lunch podcast. Follow us on Twitter. He's at Jim Garrity. I'm at Dateline underscore DC. And uh, have a great Wednesday and join us again on Thursday for the next Three Martini Lunch. This week on the Federalist Radio Hour. The left would, of course, counter and say, well, listen, the, the sort of political establishment swindled everyone into paying these really high rates. So, in fact, it's just to sort of forgive this illegitimate uh, debt to begin with. But, you know, you're sort of stripping people of their own agency and decision making powers um, in, in order to make that argument. I'm Emily Jashinsky of The Federalist. Subscribe to The Federalist on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. 